You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Something went haywire with American politics not long into the social media age. Report after report told us that America was sick and tired of the two major factions. Yet as it turned out, the only avenue for someone to disrupt those factions seemed to be securing the faction's nod to run for president by destroying that faction's major candidates. In the meantime, on the other side, Safe, Legal, and Rare gave way sometime around the summer of 2016 to shouting one's abortion, celebrating it at conventions, and other such things. And because the GOP didn't want to get left behind in this race to madness, the former home of the moral majority and the religious right nominated a professional wrestling promoter who posed for the cover of Playboy and, as we found out later, paid off some of its models to keep his affairs quiet. And while all this was going on, Charlie Camozzi wrote us a book proposing a different sort of politics, one rooted not in red-blue tribalism, but in an ethic that receives life as a gift in all arenas of public matter and invites the so-called exhausted middle to start telling the parties what to do instead of the other way around. That sounds so good right now that I'm especially glad to have Charlie back on the show to talk about his new book, Resisting Throwaway Culture from New City Press. Charlie, thank you for coming back on Christian Humanist Profiles. Hi, Nathan. I'll try to live up to that in introductions. <laughs> I'm, I'm confident you will. I'm confident you will. Charlie, this book is a collection of moral explorations, but every moral exploration has some kind of story to it. So what role does Carlo Bernadine play in this story of a consistent life ethic? Well, in some ways, the consistent life ethic which undergirds my book is, I think, just in some ways, the gospel. You know, Matthew 25, um, consistently um, protecting and supporting the least among us. But Cardinal Bernadine was the first person to really label it um, a consistent ethic of life. Uh, I teach at Fordham University in New York, and he actually gave um, his initial uh, lecture about this matter at in the Gannon Lecture at Fordham in 1981. And it just so happened that there was a New York Times um, a, a, a reporter in the audience, and they wrote a front-page headline that Bernadine comes out against abortion and nuclear war. It was the midst of the Cold War, of course. And uh, <clears throat> that changed a lot of narratives, and it, it pushed a lot of people to rethink their tribal and political, um, tribal politics and their um, their uh, idolatry of the secular political parties. Uh, and he would continue until he died in the 90s, continue to push for something like this, though he took hits from both right and left. And I think he was emerged the victor because something like what he proposed is now just the teaching of the Catholic Church. When Pope St. John Paul II wrote Evangelium Vitae in 1995, it just was a consistent ethic of life. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, this, this is not mainly a book about journalism, but uh, you kind of explore the way that different popes get different issues focused on. So it looks like there's a lot of movement from pope to pope. But, I mean, you argue that this consistent life ethic has been fairly consistent, at least within my lifetime of the last 40 years or so. Yeah, I mean, as we all know, media can create narratives that uh, can resist the truth, let's say. And um, while let's be honest about the differences between, say, Pope Francis and John Paul II, 
they are both right smack dab in the middle, middle of this tradition. And you can focus on what John Paul II said about sex, if you want, or you can focus on what he said about ecological issues, if you want. Same with Francis. Um, he did say we need to speak less about abortion and contraception. And as somebody who cares deeply about abortion especially, I agree with him. But the very next day, he went out and spoke about abortion. So when he says speak less, he doesn't he means the op he doesn't mean not speak at all. He just means have a let's rediscover a balance. And he said Pope Francis has said some unbelievably difficult and hard things about abortion, even in some ways more difficult than anything Benedict and John Paul II said. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the interesting things about your work more generally, but also about this book is that if you go on Twitter, and I'd advise against that, but if you do. <laughs> You know, you're going to see pro-choice and pro-life. You're going to see left versus right. Uh, But this book kind of refuses those conventional labels and in favor of throwaway culture versus a culture of encounter. And I want you to take a few minutes to explore, I mean, what that opposition means and how it differs from uh, sort of the conventional social media and CNN coverage labels that we get. Well... Um, you can obviously apply the no to throwaway culture and yes to culture of encounter around multiple um, contexts, and my book does. But at a very basic level, it means encountering a person and not discarding them or throwing them away. And in the context of what you're talking about, very few encounters happen on Twitter or social media, right? Genuine encounters, something... Uh, very different generally generally happens. Um, but I think as a first step for any kind of exchange, and I've tried to make this a hallmark of my work, um, is an attempt to just engage the other, to be in their presence, to stop, to listen, to be challenged, uh, to be in their physical presence when possible. And um, we all know that that can totally change the dynamic is when we're in the physical presence of someone. And... Uh, I think we get very different results when we try to pursue a culture of encounter versus a, uh, you know, whatever passes for exchange on the interwebs. Yes, indeed. And we're going to, you know, take a kind of tour through some of the cultural and political questions. Uh, But one thing about this book, again, and I appreciate it, is that it doesn't uh, entertain a hard distinction between political questions on one side and, 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 and cultural questions on the other. That's one of the moves that, uh, frankly, you know, troubles me sometimes when I read the, the National Review set. They say that, you know, we need to focus on culture rather than politics. And this book, you know, uh, certainly engages, you know, both of what they would consider those, but they, it shows the connections more than it shows the separation. And one of those places is in hookup culture. Uh, and it's an unlikely place if you're expecting a book on, you know, abortion or nuclear war. Uh, <laughs> but how does this hookup culture manifest this capitalism without limits and the destruction that it wreaks? And what alternative does a consistent life ethic present to hookup culture? Well, throwaway culture, I think hookup culture is a species of throwaway culture. So. Throwaway culture, again, turns people into things, and um, things uh, very often to discard, sometimes metaphorically, but often explicitly. 
And uh, hookup culture is one of those places where both the thingification, if you will, and the disc, this, the discarding are made explicit. So the very, you know, notion of something like hook, hookup culture says we are not going to treat each other as people. We're going to dehumanize each other, te- uh, treat each other as sexual objects, mutually treat each other as sexual ob- objects, and then have no emotional ties at all afterwards. So we, you know, discard each other at the end of the day. And uh, I, I mean, that's self-explanatory almost how that, how that fits. I mean, it fits almost perfectly into what um, throwaway culture um, is. Now, a culture of encounter would be, as it is in every circumstance, the antidote to um, the throwaway culture. So a genuine culture of encounter, again, would be forcing us to encounter the person of the um, other side of that, um, the sexual encounter. So uh, not not uh, use them as objects, not simply throw them away when done, but genuinely encounter them in their full humanity. And I believe, uh, along with the church, that their um, encountering somebody sexually in their f- full humanity ought to be done um, in full respect of what sex is about. And sex is about total self-gift. There's no more intimate, um, especially at, at the post-Me Too era, we know just what is at stake in the sexual act in terms of um, what is given <clears throat> and what can be taken away. And we also know uh, what sex often results in. And if you just <laughs> look at it biologically, what's it for? So I think truly respecting a, um, a culture of encounter would mean respecting what sex is and what it can do. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask a follow-up. A lot of this uh, book treats questions of public policy. Uh, this seems to be a chapter where public policy is a, a tool that doesn't do the job that you seem to want to do here. When it comes to countering hookup culture, I mean, do you see that as uh, something that happens, you know, mainly in a family context, in a homiletic context? Uh, I mean, you know, when when you ask people to resist hookup culture, uh, where's the battlefield? Uh, well, I think it's a multi-pronged, multi-fronted uh, battlefield. So uh, I do think there are some policies that we can talk about. For instance, uh, you know, places like the UK and Iceland have talked about, and I think in the case of Iceland, has succeeded in banning porn. So wouldn't that be a great step to say this is inherently dehumanizing, um, it's, it's deeply connected to problematic, deeply hor- horrific things like human trafficking, um, it's a social um, um, health crisis, public health crisis. Uh, maybe we should ban it. <laughs> and uh, I think that would be an amazing first step. And it it's actually it could be a point of common ground between, say, a certain kind of liberal feminist and a certain kind of Christian conservative, which are always connections I like to make. Uh, but but I think the, the thrust of your question is important. I, I do think it's ultimately a or maybe primarily would be a better way to say it, um, a cultural value. And I, I always ask my students when we talk about this stuff in class, I say, you know, the, the ethic that, that's being talked about here is the ethic of your grandparents, uh, the, the sexual ethic of your grandparents. It's not new. It's anything but new and fresh and exciting. The only thing that's new, it's, it's being perpetuated now by um, digital platforms that never existed before. And we can see some of the detrimental results of that. 
are, are you prepared as a, you know, as a generation just to go along with what your parents and grandparents have, have given us, have given you, uh, or do your, does your generation have something different to say about that? And I, I, I mean, it's, it's an open question, but I wonder if the hashtag me too era hasn't put us on a trajectory to really rethink some of these things. Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, it's not a uh, connection that I would have imagined before I read this book, but uh, there's a, a link between hookup culture on the one hand and then the ecological crisis on the other because uh, one of the, I guess, propaganda points is the phrase that, that comes to mind that you definitely counter at, at every possible turn in this book uh, is that the main ecological crisis that we confront is overpopulation. Right. Time and time again, you point out that it is the places where birth rates are falling that we have an increasing share of pollution and climate change. Uh, so what alternative picture of things or what alternative story do you present when it comes to the ecological crisis? Well, it's not, um, you know, I didn't come up with the idea, but um, for some time now, the Christian ethicists in my circle have been pointing out that it's the very consumerism that is killing the planet and endangering the future generations of human beings that we all care so much about um, that is responsible for how we think about our sexuality, right? So our hyper-consumerist culture, our throwaway culture, consumerizes sexuality. Um, and as a result, uh, it's, it fits into this consumer culture. Sex is made to fit into the consumer culture, not the other way around because the market wins and consumer culture wins. <clears throat> uh, it ought to lose when it comes to sex. It ought to lose when it comes to climate change and ecological protection, but it does not because we idolize um, a kind of consumerism. We idolize a kind of American Western style market. And, uh, and as long as that's the case, um, it's not surprising to see places where um, sex and reproduction have been commodified, consumerized, um, also being the most important places for global climate change, most important contributors to global climate change, because both at bottom are places where consumerism rules. Well, I know I said uh, I wasn't going to mainly talk about journalism, but I do have to ask about the more journalistic parts of this book. Uh, <laughs> there are sections where you actually get into the actual character of foreign culture, the market for Ivy League women's eggs, uh, just how much of Planned Parenthood's yearly activity consists of abortion, uh, all kinds of very detailed, granular investigations, and you seem to be aiming at getting past the euphemisms and the vagueness that perpetuate the throwaway culture. So as you see things, uh, how aware are people of such things before such reporting happens, and do you see this obfuscation as more of a conspiracy more of a decentralized cultural amnesia or as something else entirely i think i think few are aware and um that's a good question i really hadn't thought about whether it's intentional or more structural or kind of um something other than intentional uh i suppose that it's a mixture of both uh okay for some uh i think it is explicitly you know, where um, the dark side of porn is something that's hidden from public view quite intentionally. The people who get, um, you know, 
uh, chewed up and spit out the uh, bottom of porn aren't given interviews, right? They're not held up as models of what's happening in the industry. Um, but, uh, but on the other hand, like, um, how throwaway culture functions say with regard to embryos seems to be like after IVF seems to be out in the open. You know, we kind of all know that excess embryos. In fact, we had a whole debate in the nineties and early two thousands about what to do with these embryos. Some get thrown away, some get used in research. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about. I think it's a combination of um, kind of factors that are impersonal and, and structural and are related to consumerism and how consumerism plays in throwaway culture where there often isn't, you know, what we typically think of as an agent involved. But in other cases, it does seem to be something that's more intentional. Well, I want to focus on uh, your treatment of abortion. Uh, listeners who have been listening to Christian humanist profiles for a while might have heard you come on to talk about Beyond the Abortion Wars several years ago. Uh, but here we are recording it in, in June 2019. Wow. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll encourage <laughs> listeners to go back to, I think it was 2013, 2014 when we recorded that one, uh, because a lot of the material there remains constant here. But in the news, Charlie, there are some bills introduced in the Midwest and the South that, in my view, have brought out some false analogies and some ad hominems and some non sequiturs in ways that I just wasn't aware of them before if they were there. Uh, so I'm going to take a step aside from the book for a second. I'm going to ask you to give me some personal advice here. Okay. Would I do better to engage some of the most egregious, fallacious memes and posts? Or would I spend that time better revising my freshman rhetoric courses so that a few dozen students learn to build valid lines of thought rather than what I see on Twitter? I'll take option B. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. Uh, and I, mean, and I, I say this I, because you are active on social media. Well, I'm not. I'm not holding myself up as a paragon of virtue in this area. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I'm a. Uh, I'm a victim of the somebody's wrong on the internet uh, fallacy uh, <laughs> quite a bit, quite a bit. Um, sometimes I just have to say those words, you know, and say, Charlie, it's okay that somebody's wrong on the internet. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I think those memes are, you know, in, a, in when cooler heads are prevailing are designed to get people riled up or designed to get, um, you know, more, attention to the person who's tweeted them or posted them. So, uh, I think it is, I mean, I, I don't know exactly much about the students in your rhetoric class, but, uh, (laughs) it sounds like that's probably a better use of your time. All right. All right. Well, and I mean, I'll, 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 I'll go ahead and confess that, uh, the stupid memes hit me the hardest when it is my former students posting them. Oh boy. Yeah. I think, Oh, I have, I have utterly failed as an educator because you find that compelling for reasons that, we should have dealt with when you were 18, but that's <laughs> <laughs> this. This is not my therapy ch- session, Charlie. We're talking about your book, so happy to move in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> I'll confess that I expected to read about refugees when we got to the chapter on warfare and state violence, uh, but you bring up refugees in the in the ch- chapter on climate change, uh, and I honestly did not know before I read this book just how many people are driven out of their homes here in the last few years by rising sea levels and other factors that, you know, are involved with climate change. 
Uh, I thought about, you know, refugees as a, a, a Syrian thing, not as a coastal thing. Uh, so why should Christians attend to climate change refugees uh, more than, frankly, the nightly news does? Because if you just look at the news, you never hear about these people. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, one of my big frustrations, and you, anybody who follows me on social media is probably aware of this, is that some of the most um, vocal people on governmental responses to climate change uh, are completely missing on other issues related, strongly related to climate change, but aren't don't fit into the easy narrative of like, oh, we need more carbon credits or let's have a green new deal. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, where are people? Are, why aren't people talking about um, the refugees, uh, the refugee crisis, the results of climate change? And why aren't people talking about who's at risk for that more often? I married into a Filipino family and everybody in the Philippines is hyper aware of climate change for reasons you might be able to imagine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I wish we had coverage of these things. It would, they would be great stories. There would be stories of human drama and misery and overcoming adversity. <clears throat> but it seems as if we only get coverage when it fits a kind of, um, for lack of a better way of saying it left, like let's get the government program we want narrative and that really does i can understand i'm not a conservative but i can understand how conservatives look at that and say well you don't really you're not really interested in climate change or you would be all over these kinds of stories but you're only interested in them it seems when it is about a certain kind of government program so i you can see i'm getting a little worked up here it's oh, it's sure. it, it's really it's really annoying and does a total disservice to the the actual important value of addressing the effects and, and the people who are deep, most deeply affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. Well, the consistent life ethic, as, as this book presents it, uh, does not demand absolute pacifism or absolute veganism, uh, but certainly the book calls on us, all of us, uh, to think about violence to national enemies and to animals more carefully than throwaway culture would have us think. Uh, so what questions should people be asking about warfare and about treating meat as a product that a, an NFL pregame show and the commercial breaks in the ensuing game wouldn't lead us to ask? <laughs> That's a great question. You invoked our national liturgy there. Yes. Um, uh, I plead guilty as well. I'm trying to get off it, but it's hard. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 if I remember right, you're a Notre Dame alum, are you not? I am, yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that runs deep. I've heard people from all over the political spectrum, uh, from Notre Dame, and, I mean, one common thread that runs through is the football never leaves you. Yeah, and uh, my parents met on a train going to see Notre Dame play Alabama in the Sugar Bowl in 1973. Oh, wow, so, okay. Uh, okay. So, we have a uh, – I quite literally wouldn't be here without Notre Dame football. <laughs> uh, so it's so it's difficult, but um, but veganism warfare. Let's get let's get yeah, back yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually was gonna try to. I was originally gonna have a chapter on football in this book, but I decided mm -hmm. not to. But but veganism warfare. I guess I guess they're both classic examples of throwaway culture again, which is why I included them. Uh, you know, we ought to when when um, when it seems like we're being sold a bill of goods. When something seems too good to be true, when when we're sitting in this kind of buffered reality. <clears throat> where it's clear we're not really authentically connecting to what it is that we're doing or what it is we're supposedly engaging, our critical apparatus got to, ought to go up. 
And, you know, if we stop and think about it for a moment, I was giving a theology on tap talk last night and I said, you know, how many of us use a certain kind of language for our pets and a very different kind of language for the animals we eat? <laughs> and if that's the case, our critical apparatus should go up. Why do we refer to dogs and think of dogs a certain way? And why do we think of pigs a certain way? Why do we use totally different language and, and um, matrices of um, ethics when it comes to those two animals, which are very similar? If you just look at their moral things that you would think would impact their moral status, what we think of them morally, uh, they're very similar. In fact, one can make a strong argument that, that pigs matter at least as much as dogs, maybe even more. Um, I think something similar happens with war. So when we're given the kind of national narrative about their sacrifice and their patriotism and all that they do for us, but if we look around at the average homeless person we step over on the street in a major city, it's very often an Iraq war veteran who is hooked on drugs and alcohol, somebody that's been thrown away by our culture after, quote-unquote, serving their country, right? So, um, it, 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 in both cases, it, bear, it, it's, it would behoove us to bear in mind that these matters require us to go beyond the cultural narrative or even go beyond what a typical um, engagement with these kinds of issues um, gives us and, and, and peer into it a little deeper. Think, think more uh, critically about what is actually going on here. And if you, I, I believe if you do that, you're going to find out the throwaway culture is really, really active in both sets of issues. I want to pose a question about uh, political fragmentation when it comes to warfare, because one thing that has troubled me, uh, and honestly, I, I probably lean a little bit more pacifist than you do, although I'm, I'm not sure about that from the book because that wasn't really your focus, uh, but one temptation in anti-war circles uh, is to regard the faction one likes least, I'll put it that way. So Democrats regard any Republican, you know, nods towards we need to reduce warfare as, uh, well, they just want to, I, I don't even know, abdicate their responsibility in the world. And, you know, on the reverse side, you know, the GOP sees any Democrat resistance to war as, you know, somehow weakening America. Um in your view, people who are pursuing this consistent life ethic, uh, should we get on board with politicians when they lean that direction, or should we treat them with more suspicion, or is it more complex than that? Well, I mean, I, I'm pretty close to a pacifist, so I, I'm, um, I'm so rad. I mean, the, the whole book, uh, one of the major principles of the book is to avoid violence in every circumstance, whether we're talking about abortion, whether we're talking about sex, whether we're talking about war, animals. I do think, though, that we're, um, I'm in, I am in the, we ought to bear strong witness to um, the peaceable kingdom is much stronger than we currently do. Mm -hmm. But I also, I'm also aware of the fact that we are not yet. We're, we're, the kingdom is here, but also it's not here yet and in its fullness. And, um, and to that extent, we're, you know, we're not in Eden where God commanded us to be vegan. I don't think it's a Christian requirement to be vegan. I think it will be a Christian thing to be vegan. I know it will be a Christian requirement mm -hmm. to be vegan uh, in heaven. The lamb is going to lay down with the lion and the baby by the adder's lair. But um, we're not there yet. And I think something similar is true of violence in police actions and war. 
Um, so I would even, you know, I'm skeptical of just war theory. I think we ought to, especially for today's um, institutions and weapons, we need a, a strongly updated version. I hear that might be in the works, actually, um, so at some at some level. Uh, um, there have been working groups on it anyway in the Vatican. People I know have gone, so that, I find that hopeful. Okay. But uh, but I'm still not going to be a straight up no chaser pacifist because I in any of these contexts. So I do think, for instance, that a woman can have an abortion to save her life. That kind of that kind and I, I that's a kind of violence. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's that's killing. Um, so I guess that's where I'd locate myself. Okay. Uh, and I'm sorry, I got sidetracked on the, the side question there, but, uh, again, when it comes to, you know, allying with politicians who for the moment are anti-war, oh, right, right. how much suspicion would you advise there and how much, uh, I don't know, uh, cooperation would you advise there? I was not trying to avoid your question. Uh, no, that's I didn't pose the question very well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I would take it as a case-by-case basis, you know? Okay. Um, So I think it's healthy to be skeptical of all politicians. I mean, it's something of a cliche, but we ought to be skeptical of politicians uh, just in general. Uh, But if somebody is clearly using a cudgel against, um, you know, a a political enemy um, and trying to gain political points... Uh, for doing so, that's a good reason to be even more skeptical of any claim they would make about being anti-war or something like that. I mean, Trump seemed to be anti-war when he was running for president, right? He was going to get us out of um, Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever, and he was, you know, he was crit- criticizing the rush to war. But then there's very few people who, you know, up the rhetoric, like with North Korea or um, Iran. So, you know, when people are making political moves, um, it's it's healthy to be skeptical. I feel the same way about abortion, for instance. I think a lot of people make noises about uh, being similarly nonviolent when it comes to abortion. And then you hear charter members of the pro-life caucus have actually tried to force their mistresses to have abortions. And you're like, yeah. well, I don't know if I can believe anything these people are saying. But I think it's too important an issue, really, to not to just dismiss everyone uh, in that circumstance. And there does seem to be a, a after Iraq a kind of general skepticism in the country, and I think more skepticism in the legislature than there used to be about um, using uh, uh, something like explicit war, anyway, um, as a, as the kind of tool we did in the '90s and 2000s. So, uh, to that extent, I think we ought to at least you know, help people, help push people along who make these kind of noises. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got another question, uh, kind of following up on that. I mean, you are uh, either on the board or, or used to be on the board of Democrats for Life, so your tendency seems to be to try to push the DNC in a, in a, away from abortion, away from celebrating abortion, I'll put it that way, rather than to push the GOP away from celebrating military aggression is there a reason that you lean that way or is it just family history or i mean uh what kind of yeah i mean what kind of processes led you that direction rather than the alternative well i guess i'm uh i'm i don't guess uh academics talk that way all the time i am (laughs) a a registered independent um though i am on remain on the board of democrats for life though sometimes it's by a thread given what what's going on in that party. Yeah. 
Um, especially on abortion, but not only on abortion. Um, so I, I really do, uh, want to stay with the party. I want to try to push it in positive directions. I, to the extent that I can, or with others, to the extent that we can do it together. Um, because I think in part, uh, the reason why, um, it became so, um, extreme on abortion, for instance, was because people abandoned it and, 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 and left it to the most extreme, uh, members of, um, of the abortion rights movement. And we've seen the, we've all seen the horrific results of that. I think something similar would be true of other kinds of violence, you know, whether we're talking about war or whatever, I think it's, I think it's important to stay with, stay with the party, um, and make it a strong party that is broadly representative with a big tent. So it doesn't get taken over by the extremists. It doesn't get, it doesn't, it's not, a, it's, it's becomes less possible for one faction to just move it unilaterally in a particular direction, but that it's forced to reckon with its internal diversity. And it, it really, it really does have the diversity already. It's, um, all like, for instance, all the people of color in the party have wildly different views on so many different kinds of matters than the white people in the party, for instance. Mm -hmm. And, but, but often those, <laughs> that diversity is ignored or, or not discussed or, um, doesn't make it up the chain to the people who have power in the party. And we end up with something quite unilateral and not reflective of the diversity of the party. So I think in order, rather than continue to abandon one of our two major parties to those extremists in leadership, I think it's important to stay engaged. Okay. And that, that's a, that is an interesting approach, especially in an era where, you know, uh, as you cite in the book, you know, 70% of the populace in a recent survey said that they find the public voice of their own party exhausting. Yeah, I count myself in that exhausted majority. I think it's 65% or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in there. I'm a registered independent, so... But by the same token, I want to try to walk in Chugam at the same time. You know, I, I'm I like to explore creative options like the American Solidarity Party and uh, and other things. And, and even just in my book, I, I actually call for taking a political retreat or even like a hot political shower for a while uh, <laughs> and uh, kind of rubbing the grime off ourselves from especially from 2016 and and then returning, especially after being transformed by a culture of encounter with others at our local level. We seem to be up at this frothy, angsty level of national politics all the time, and it's just not good for us. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I I do think yeah. Anyway, I'll stop. I'll leave it there. No, 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 no. I I, I am I, I'm your amen pew here. I, uh, <laughs> I I I honestly, for me, May 2019 was uh, what finally drove me off of social media. I'm trying to stay off of it as much as I can at this point, just because it did. You know, as I as I mentioned earlier, at this point. I've got former former students driving me to despair of my educational career. Oh boy, so, <laughs> oh boy. Hey, so. this is the second time you mentioned that, Nathan. Are you sure you don't want to turn it? Oh into man, I, I I feel like I already have Charlie. So I'll, I'll I'll get back to the book. I'll get back to the book. No, but. no, I'm happy. I I'm a teacher myself, so I get it. <laughs> well, one move that surprised me in this book uh, was a somewhat cautious look at organ donation as a practice. So. Just about every public voice on organ donation that I had heard before this seemed to assume that the practice is benevolent without remainder or without unforeseen consequence even. 
what warning does resisting throwaway culture have to offer? And, and you know, is, is this a warning that should alter behavior or just get us asking different questions? I think mo mostly asking different questions. So um, I know it's uh, very popular uh, to just dismiss the past or decisions made in the past that seem strange to us as, well, these people were obviously stupid or dramatically limited or they didn't have the information available or whatever. But I, I'm fascinated when a, um, a decision from the Vatican, say, uh, from 300 years ago, just seems so utterly wrong to us today. Uh, <clears throat> like, for instance, it's not the topic about the topic you just mentioned, but for for a long time, as you know, um, uh, the, the the Vatican and, and the official teaching of the Church was against what they called Americanism and liberalism. And for most of my life, I look back at those um, uh, those pronouncements with embarrassment and even uh, a kind of anger. Um, but now I'm I'm not in a post-liberal mode. But there are people who are making some interesting arguments about the problems with liberalism and the problems with what they meant by Americanism. And I'm starting to see what they were talking about, some, at least some of what they were talking about, right? And um, something like this happens, uh, happened to me when I looked at the, the church's initial uh, reaction to organ donation as a kind of bodily mutilation. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and what weren't, weren't supportive of it at, at the beginning. Um, especially when it was a non-vital organ that, um, I mean, it was all, at least as I remember from my research, it was all the way around because it would have been mutilation of a dead body as well, but especially mutilation of a living body, um, when it was a non-vital organ. <clears throat> so I initially thought about this as, you know, something of interest, like what was, what was going on here? What was their, what was their thought process as I tried to think of, um, at least open the possibility that maybe they we're thinking of something I'm not, or that we're not, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think there's there are some worries there about throwaway culture, consumerism, um, the commodification of people. Uh, that if we're not careful, we can move in that direction. Uh, as you probably know, it's a hot topic in bioethics. There are some people who argue we ought to stop the donation process and just put organs on the open market. That will lower um, barriers to entry for people that need organs that currently many, many people die on, um, you know, transplant waiting lists. If there's a market, they say, uh, we will have lower prices and more uh, supply and more people will live. And from a utilitarian consumerist perspective, market-based perspective, economic perspective, that might make good sense, actually. Like, I don't I actually think that's a good argument on that level, but I think it's a terrible argument on another level, which is, are, do we really want to make, you know, body parts part of a market? Is that is that what our is is or is that risk a kind of throwaway culture that I'm trying to you know call us to resist, you know, in the rest of the book? Mm -hmm. Well, moving on to the the chapter on state violence, uh, you know. I already knew that uh, Catholic intellectuals took an early and a consistent stand against nuclear weapons, as they should. That part didn't surprise me. Another part that the last two decades of this new war on terror and nuclear saber-rattling with North Korea, which we already mentioned, uh, you present evidence that these are actually putting 
a deleterious strain on the U.S. economy. That surprised me a little bit. Uh, first of all, I mean, what was your course of research on that? Uh, and second, you know, what kinds of questions do American citizens especially need to start answering in a hurry with regards to that military-industrial complex and our military-religious culture that we've talked about? Yeah. Well, I'm no expert on um, how much the new generation of uh, of ICBMs and nuclear warheads uh, cost, but um, I think I was quoting others in that chapter saying that in order for us to keep up with what China and Russia are pushing, especially since the Non-Proliferation Act has basically blown up in all three of our faces, or at least our two, I don't think China's part of it, so two, two of our faces. Yeah. Um, uh, the the price tag to do that just seems completely bonkers, and from people who seem to know. And uh, but it's interesting, isn't it? In part because it's um, part of our national religion, uh, national secular religion. Uh, we seem to find money for such things, you know. Like if we want to fight a trillion dollar war, as we did in um, the Middle East, we we find ways to find the money for that. Um, we'll find ways, we are finding ways to find money for the next generation of uh, nuclear warheads. But the way the way that we're doing that, of course, is putting it on um, the national credit card so that my children and your grandchildren will be the ones uh, to pay for, with, with interest, of course, uh, for these warheads. We are not going to pay for them. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting that we're probably borrowing the money for from China to pay for the nuclear weapons that we're using to try to keep pace with the Chinese. Just so yeah. delicious. It's just so delicious. Um, in a terrible way, in a terrible way, but, um, so beautifully ironic, but, uh, but that fits very well with, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, if you, if you will, national liturgy or national religion when it comes to how we think about state violence and, um, and, and it's with, with regard to violence that we're willing to put the kind of resources in, uh, when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to um, education, when it comes to uh, closing the gaps in healthcare, we're not willing to find the money. Um, but when it comes to next generation of nuclear weapons, you know, cha-ching. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, I do have a question. I, and, you know, again, this is a uh, how then shall I live kind of question, Charlie. But, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about uh, NCAA football. I'm a big fan of minor league baseball. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed here in the last couple of years is that every baseball game or almost every baseball game I've gone to uh, has functionally had two national anthems, the Star Spangled Banner before the first inning and then God Bless America in the middle of the seventh inning. Uh, I mean, can I still go to minor league baseball games, Charlie? <laughs> Yeah, but uh, so quick story. My brother, uh, we, we grew up in Wisconsin, and my brother, for his first job, moved to Texas. He taught um, history at a Texas Catholic high school in Texas. And they, as you may know, or maybe maybe you don't, um, Texas uh, kids stand for the pledge to the U.S. flag, and then they also stand for a pledge to the Texas state flag. Oh, I did not know that. Which, um, which my brother, having just moved from Wisconsin, was not about to stand <laughs> For the uh, for the pledge to the Texas state flag, so he sat down for it, 
And uh, his students thought this was kind of at once interesting, mildly bad, but just gave him crap for it mostly. Um, I wonder if that's the kind of reaction we should start having, especially when we try to <laughs> idolatrously locate American, U.S. American, um, uh, especially military uh, interests and practices with the will of God. I mean, that seems to be uh, uh, something we should sit down for. So maybe that's the way to go is to make a witness during this. Is it during the seventh inning stretch? That it they... is indeed. After take me out to the ball game, it's a, yeah. it's God bless America. And, I, and I'll, I'll confess what I, usually do is i just take that uh, that opportunity to go to the bathroom so i don't have to mess with it but <laughs> it, well, it, it is notable know, is it worth is it worth getting the scorn from your fellow uh you know fans to to sit down explicitly during it and maybe somebody will ask you about it you can have uh, i should I, I i probably should charlie but i don't i <laughs> <laughs> oh man well i want to talk about historical change uh, you make a point in the in that same chapter, the chapter on state violence, uh, that medieval writers generally had a place in their public theology for the crowns and scepters of the world to execute prisoners, uh, but that more recently Catholic writers call for bans on state executions. Um, so what has changed and what does that change signal about the character and the possibilities inherent within Christian philosophy? Well, I, I mean, um, people. some people think of me as a very traditional Christian, and I guess in some sense I am, in that I take the tradition very seriously and authoritatively. But I'm, I'm also aware of history. I mean, how can you not study history and come to the conclusion that the church has changed her mind on things? It should yeah. just be historically ignorant to, um, to say, to come to any other conclusion. And I, I don't, frankly, don't know why... Uh, so many of my fellow traditional Christians are invested in saying that, well, actually, at the end of the day, this wasn't exactly the same kind of execution, or, or there was this other thing with the mitigating factor. No, there was a time the church very clearly favored executions. You can talk about, like, okay, the church is related to the state in various ways that made it problematic and whatnot, but um, at the end of the day, the church had a particular position on executions and they no longer have that position and in fact pope francis as i mentioned the book has kicked it up a notch he called it's not clear what he means by inadmissible but he's called the death penalty inadmissible i wish he used a more clear um more clear idea there but uh but that that just seems to be what the church does so we We've we've come to different conclusions about organ donation, as I mentioned before. That there probably was a good, there was in fact a good impulse to be against it first, to be skeptical at first. There is a good impulse. I mean, I I think for I think for many people in the Middle Ages and late Middle Ages and and uh, and even beyond, there was a sense that this would help um, the the prisoner who's going to be executed in some way. It was for their benefit um, that they were killed and. In part, it was, um, you know, to help them come to grips with what they've done and ask for forgiveness mm-hmm. and, and save their soul at the end of the day. Um, so these, though, though profoundly mistaken, um, there are often good impulses behind these things or things that we ought to be looked at with a certain kind of historical, um, well, through a historical lens at any rate, um, to help understand them. Uh, but, but there's, there's been a shift and it's been a welcome shift and, 
it's it's there's this website called conservatives against the death penalty um plenty many states um that are red um uh don't have the death penalty some states that are blue have the death penalty it's one of those things that don't easily fit into the right or left box anymore california for instance had the chance during the 2016 election to ban the death penalty by referendum they did not so it was a bad it was a bad um it was a bad pro-life, in my opinion, it was a bad pro-life um, election in 2016 for lots of reasons. Yeah. But one reason is because of the death penalty. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Like, like I said, I mean, the. I think part of the difference has to do with the difference between a crown and a state. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the fact that uh, you actually did have either a, a king or an agent of a king actually executing someone i mean you know uh it's kind of bizarre you and i have talked about you know political euphemisms already this show and we talked about it a few years ago but uh the whole notion of capital punishment or a death penalty maybe it's because i've taught orwell too much but i (laughs) but I, i want someone to say you know i think that the state of georgia should kill your brother you know yeah uh if if that's what's going to happen that's how you should put it (laughs) and and uh and and we could get into some details about the kinds of ways that they're actually killing. They're yeah. Um, we're moving the the firing squad is back. Hey everybody, we're getting the old band back together. The firing squad. Yeah, it's, yeah. Utah is doing that, and a couple, at least one other state I think is has brought back the firing squad because we're now because prisoners are now choosing the firing squad over lethal injection because it turns out lethal injection isn't great uh, way yeah. to die. I mean, there's no probably great way to die, but. It isn't this painless for us. It looks like it's painless, but uh, we're learning more and more that probably for the executed victim, it's not. Right, right. Well, Charlie, many of this list, many of this show's listeners are Protestants, uh, so I want to give you a chance here to put the ecumenical case for a consistent life ethic out in front of our our listeners. So yeah, um, why, why should a Baptist or a that's Methodist... a tall order in some ways? Yeah, uh, because it is such a um, a lot of my most of my sources are um, are Catholic, mm-hmm. but um, what I try to do in the book, especially in the first chapter, oh, nuts. part of the tradition. So, for instance, the first principle is that it's always wrong to radically reduce. Someone's inherent dignity for some other. I apologize. My uh, internet just hiccuped because there's a thunderstorm rolling by. Could you act like I just finished the question and start over? Sure. Three, two, one. Well, it's a in some ways it's a tough order because um, it is. So many of my sources are in fact Catholic, but um, there's been a meeting of the Catholic evangelical minds on many of these issues, as you probably know. And um, another thing that I think helps uh, an ecumenical um, meeting of the minds on these issues is I really do finish the first chapter by focusing on seven principles that I think I've distilled that I have distilled down from uh, my sources, but including scripture. <laughs> uh, but uh, those principles are there to to see if you agree with or, or not, if the reader agrees with them or not. And I think most Christians will agree with them. So for instance, the first principle is that it's always wrong to radically reduce someone's inherent dignity for some other end, especially by aiming at their death. So 
I don't know a faithful Christian that's not going to get on board with that principle. Um, number five is resist language, practices, and social structures which detach us from the full reality and dignity of the marginalized, especially as such dignity is hidden by the broader consumer culture. I don't know many Christians anyway. I mean, I guess you get some who would defend consumerism, but not many who also wouldn't um, agree with that. So, uh, and then at, at bottom, I started the podcast with this, I think, or at least early in the podcast. Uh, you know, at the heart of what I'm up to and what the consistent ethic of life is up to is Matthew 25. So when 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 people say, uh, oh, you know, I'm a single issue Christian, I care about mostly, you know, abortion or, you know, I'm a social justice Christian, I care about, you know, healthcare. that's my primary issue or something like that. It's fine, of course, to have primary issues. But what Matthew 25 calls us all to do is to see Christ's face in all the vulnerable. So not just those who are hungry, not just those who are sick, not just those who are in prison, not just those who are a stranger, but everyone who, who bears um, the label, the least among us, the most vulnerable, those at most risk of marginalization and violence. And, and we ought to have a preference for them and we ought to be consistent. I think what's implied in the list that Jesus gives us is that we ought to be consistent in seeing his face in the most vulnerable wherever we find them. And, uh, and I had an old philosophy professor once who once said, you know, Charlie, you can't have a principle and treat it like a taxi. You have to treat it like a bus. You know, a bus, you have to follow it wherever it goes. Um, a, a taxi, you tell it where it ends up. But a principle is is like the bus. You have to follow it wherever it ends up. And otherwise, you're not being a rational thinker. And uh, and I think some of the most gross, I know some of the most gross injustices of human history have involved uh, people being unwilling to follow their principles uh, across the bus, uh, you know, the bus path rather than treating it as a taxi. So I, I guess what I'd like all Christians and all of us to do is to say, if we accept these principles, if we accept these values, we have to follow them wherever they lead us. Very good. Very good. Well, Charlie, I've been at the wheel for, uh, of the bus for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about a culture of encounter, a consistent life ethic, public policy, or anything else as we head for the door? Well, it may scandalize some of your Protestant viewers. I don't know, but I was, I was, I think I mentioned I was at a theology on tap before last night. I was giving a talk, and this is where Catholics gather to talk theology and drink alcohol. Um, but um, at that talk, I it was in Washington D.C., and uh, I tried to make the case that um, Christians, and especially Catholic Christians, but not only Catholic Christians, ought to prioritize, reprioritize our connections to our most fundamental values, the fundamental values of the gospel. And um, take a break. I already hinted at this um, earlier in the podcast, but let me just make it explicit here and, and underline it here. There are so many Christians who have made an idol out of a particular kind of secular politics, and we have to do better than that. We just have to. We have to be more broad, more careful, more consistent, more authentic Christian witnesses in the public square. And I think we need a kind of, and I include myself in this, we need a kind of strategic retreat in some ways uh, to cleanse ourselves, to pray, to be with God, to be with God's creation, to be with each other, to have genuine encounters and be transformed by those experiences 
And maybe as a result of that transformation and reinvigoration, um, come come back to the public square in a way where we're more authentically Christian, more authentically um, evangelizers of others, and especially of those we encounter in our personal lives. Uh, I'll finish with this. The, the it's so difficult though because the the social structures, especially especially the technocratic social structures that um, undergird all of our lives or most of our lives today, push us in very different directions. They push us in the opposite of genuine encounter, transformational encounters with others. We talked a little bit about Twitter <laughs> earlier in the podcast, but that's all the more reason to be more focused on this. It seems to me. And again, I'm not speaking high and mighty from above. I need I include myself in this. I want to get better at this. I wrote this book in part so I, I could help myself get better at this. But I think we all need to get better, or most of us need to get better at this. And um, if we can all do it together, that's that's the way Christians do things. So let's get to work. Charlie Camozzi, thank you for coming back on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. It's been great again. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is Resisting Throwaway Culture from New City Press. Uh you can get it on, you know, Amazon or whatever other uh, consumeristic outlet you prefer. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>